Welcome to the C-Suite podcast coming to you on demand from Toronto. I'm Russell Goldsmith and I'm here at the World Public Relations Forum grabbing a few minutes with some of the speakers at the conference, which I have to say has been superb so far. Um, in the previous show, we discussed the future of PR and greenwashing. And next up for show 23, I'm now joined by Tor Odland, who is Vice President of Group Communications at Telenor Group one of the top 10 global mobile carriers. Uh, Tor's just presented a fascinating session on transparency in the age of digital government requests, and one we're going to explore further in this chat. Welcome to the show, Tor. Thank you so much. Happy uh, to be here. Good stuff. Now, um, you set the scene in your workshop with your own personal experiences working for Telenor, uh, where a government asked your company to block access to Facebook in the region. So I thought it'd be great if you could uh, just share that story with our listeners too. Sure. A couple of years ago, uh, we uh, in one of our markets in Asia, uh, we had a situation where the government uh, asked us and the other uh, mobile operators and cable companies to block access to Facebook. And it was related to political changes going on in the country. And um, after the liberation, we decided to uh, comply with the uh, order, something that's, of course, very uncomfortable. You mm. don't really want to take away from your customers what they may love the most, uh, in this case, Facebook. Um, but we did something that all the other uh, operators did not do, that we communicated about it publicly. So we uh, told the world that we had been asked to block, and um, we also told the world that we regretted the impact on our human, the human rights of our customers. And what was the outcome of that in terms of, uh, you know, you're, you're going making those announcements was there any backlash from that particular government sure we we uh and if we you know whenever you speak up about something that uh, others don't there's a reason for others not doing it it's uh uh we we in a sense disclosed the the practices of the government and uh, put something on the record that uh, they didn't feel so comfortable about it was a little bit of a uncertainty um, of the nature of why Facebook was gone. Yeah. And so um, so that got us into a little bit of uh, disagreement for a while uh, with the government. And uh, uh, ultimately, we, um, we had to uh, take precautions to make sure that our people, and including myself, were, were safe. Because it can, wow. it can come to that level. Yeah, and, and, and I guess, I mean, obviously, safety for, for employees key issue but uh, and also I, I guess from a PR and reputational perspective from all your stakeholders seeing this this happening must must have sort of been quite a difficult thing to manage as well yeah and I think uh, you know over the last few years the awareness around um, uh, the government governments across the world's um, you know policies around controlling discourse on the internet yeah. In social media and a number of other platforms uh, is, is high attention and um, I think this uh, when this happened it was a world uh, news story um, because of also of course Facebook being so hugely popular so obviously that's a, a very different political situation to other issues your or, or other carriers um, obviously in Europe US or here in Canada may, may face for example where they're being asked for information from the network but for a good reason, you know, mm. maybe to help an investigation of a crime. Mm. Sure. So, so there are many ways that the governments are uh, are looking towards what's happening in the mobile networks. So, one thing is that they might try to control discourse uh, online. Other aspects uh, is that uh, governments uh, often have a 
very legitimate need for act for data from the network to investigate crimes, for example. Yeah. So the question is, are they doing that in a in a lawful and and, and uh, good structured way? Most of the time, for example, we uh, we require court orders before we hand out information. Uh, but uh, in some countries, uh, the laws uh, are still um, uh, relatively uh, out of sync with uh, with digital developments. And uh, um, as an operator, we have to set our own standards that we apply globally in order to to do what we can to mitigate the risk or the kind of impact on our customers. Because ultimately, we stand between um, protecting our customers and allowing for governments their most of the time lawful right to access to information. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. So it's about balancing that, that privacy, isn't it, with, with that need for information? Exactly. And I think uh, the way we look at it is that um, we need to have a very clear and grounded uh, approach to protecting human rights. It needs to be connected to our values. Yeah. It needs to be anchored with, um, you know, the UN's principles on human rights, for example. Uh, it needs to be, uh, you know, something that you execute across all your companies. It can be done in different ways in various markets. And then you have to start working with governments on, uh, on um, that they also start building understanding of what, why, why we are acting in the way we are. Because... One of our principles is that when we can, we want to be transparent about an incident taking, having taken place. Uh, and we also report every year on the number of uh, requests we get, for example. Which again, is not all governments are comfortable with that kind of reporting on the requests that they make. Do you think, though, that this is just a case of, how can I put this? I mean, personally, I, I don't see why consumers are so worried about it. You know, f at the end of the day, you, the carrier, <laughs> knows exactly where I am, um, you know, at, at all times, uh, you know, what I'm looking at, who I'm texting, you know, isn't this just us down to the fact that we don't trust our governments? Yeah, and of course, that will become down to each individual to figure out the answer to, but I think in general that uh, consumers are relatively well protected. Um, like we saw with a case in the US recently uh, regarding the San Bernardino iPhone, uh, where the government wanted access to the the shooter's mm. uh, data, uh, and Apple stood up and said, "As a principle, we we can't really support this." And I think that's a general approach that we that private companies are taking steps to do what they can to protect. But, but surely, in that individual case, it made sense for the government to have exactly. And I think, and, yeah. I, and I understand what they're saying about oh, well, that's going to set a precedent. But that is a specific requirement absolutely i think that as a society we absolutely have to have mechanisms where the government can get access to certain data in order to for example investigate crimes but where we have to have a dialogue with them is proportionality uh, it's not okay to get access to all the data from a particular area of their mobile network and all the activities because then everyone who have uh, have been inside that area at that time will kind of be part of the data that the government get access to. So governments have to be lawful. They have to be timely in the sense that that their requests have to only cover limited periods of time. Okay, all very interesting and fasc genuinely fascinating. 
how is this of relevance, you know, to the general communications audience? You know, how are they going to benefit from the experiences that, that you've been talking about and shared? Yeah, I think um, that um, we have talked for years about corporate social responsibility, um, sustainability, communication, and so on. Um, and um, I think as an industry, we have also made very good steps in uh, in the ethical platforms we work from. But here, in the case of digital government requests, there is only really one thing that will properly move us forward, and that is transparency. So here, companies have an opportunity to look at their value platform, create an approach to transparency that uh, helps us take what I call baby steps, but take steps forward on making the governments more accountable, making it easier for consumers to understand uh, what's going on. It also gives the company itself a much safer and long-term approach that they can stand by and be proud of because nobody will have all the answers, but at least here are our answers at this point in time and this is how we're contributing to a better world for all of us. Excellent. You mentioned a couple of reports that uh, Telen uh, have produced around this whole issue, one of which is the Authority Requests Disclosure Report, detailing uh, when governments have asked for requests in each of the 13 territories you trade in. I'm sure that'll be interesting reading. Where, where can our listeners go to get a copy of that? Yeah, so uh, all those reports uh, are available on telnor.com. Uh, and one fascinating report um, was done by uh, the Institute uh, for Human Rights and Business out of the UK, actually, uh, about um, the the situation in Pakistan where the government is in some situations using network shutdowns to increase national security and what the impact is of that on human rights. So that should probably be available on their website. Brilliant. Okay, well, I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on this topic because uh, it really is interesting. But for now, Tor Odlin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to a World PR Forum special of the C-Suite podcast being recorded here in Toronto with me, Russell Goldsmith. And joining me now are two more of the forum's conference uh, speakers, Mike McDougall and Amy Lewis, who have just hosted a great workshop on shaping the future of visual communications. Maybe you guys can uh, quickly introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Amy Lewis. I'm an independent consultant out of Rochester, New York. Um, and uh, I'm Mike McDougall. I have a uh, communications firm based uh, in the States. Excellent. Um, now, you shared uh, 10 trends that are shaping the future of visual communications, and I was keen to pick up on just a couple of the tips you shared. The first of which um, I thought was really interesting in terms of planning your content for future uh, technology. Sure. So I think uh, from a future standpoint, right, we don't want to be like those practitioners today who are looking at shelves of uh, VHS tapes and wondering what to do them, with them. So we need to prepare for not only the 4K visual revolution, but the 8K revolution, which is coming straight behind. So what it means practically is if you're shooting video, shoot in uh, 4K, uh, future-proof it. Yeah. Uh, if you're taking photography and pushing it onto the web um, or other platforms, you know, make sure you're taking it in the highest resolution possible. It's going to give you better options for cropping, uh, but it's going to uh, allow it to be used for a few more years. Um, gives it a little more life. Yeah, and, and you showed some examples of like the sizes of the screens that, like you say, 4K and then 8K. I mean, this is it's getting crazy, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's crazy, and the resolution, yeah. um, the detail you're going to be able to pick out is um, just it's stunning. Yeah. And then you look at also just color depth and uh, and the amount of information you're going to be able to convey 
with these new visual technologies. And that's just flat screen, right? Yeah. We're not even talking about 3D and immersive technologies right. there. Well, so talking of future technology, um, you blew my mind with uh, some examples of um, embedded technology in contact lenses, and, and you even were describing something like that was behind or in your eye itself. We're turning into like the Terminator or something out of Blade Runner, aren't we? <laughs> it really is interesting, and Mike can tell you more about uh, the the lens, but just the just the way that we will be looking at things, just our everyday world is really going to change. And a couple of the examples we gave uh, really weren't anything to do with uh, work necessarily. It isn't that our worlds will change only in our professional world, but this was you know, the one example with a guy looking in his refrigerator or cutting up uh, vegetables on a, a cutting board. As we think of going to YouTube now as a learn and how to, instead now as we would have these devices in, embedded in our bodies, uh, it's, it's, it's an opportunity where you would be learning with augmented reality, you'd be learning in real time and experiencing things uh, just beyond even even what we do as communicators is a profession. But, but picking up on that, sorry, Mike, you were just gonna. No, that. it's fine, I was gonna say, and sometimes Russell too, it's, it's maybe not as a sh much as of a shift as you may think. Um, today, when your alarm goes off in the morning, the most frequent thing somebody does is reach for their phone. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, the in the future, not the too distant future, they're going to open their eyes and what they see on their phone today is literally going to be in front of them. Yeah. That's why they're going to have the artificial lens uh, behind their eye, and they're going to have their email streaming truly when their eyes open. But but this but the issue for me, so just picking back up on what you were just saying, Amy, is that as as communicators, um, you know, how it's try the issue is trying to keep up with all these technologies, <laughs> surely. Oh, absolutely, and I don't think that it's possible to keep up with everything all of the time. Uh, and you know, we were talking a little earlier, and people have asked, well, what about things that don't make it? Essentially, some of the uh, different platforms or or ideas don't always really go as far as others. You know, Google Glass is an example of that, where um, it really sort of it's not dead, but it, it's in hibernation, as Mike said, um, to come back in a different way. But you know, there's always the challenge, and and that's true. I think and been true. I don't think any of that is really a new challenge for communicators. Things have been changing, so now they're changing at a very rapid pace, and maybe they're changing in different directions. But I think that's always been the case uh, in this kind of work that we do. You have to be you have to be adaptable. I mean, yeah. ultimately, that's one of the soft skills that's quickly becoming a hard skill in the communications profession. More adaptability, um, and the ability to we've heard it in the tech industry, but fail fast. Is there a concern though that um, you know you showed so you sh you showed some stuff that was kind like very future gazing? Mm -hmm. You also went through examples of Snapchat and Instagram. Is there a concern we're always chasing the latest platform, you know, where the audience are engaging, and then by the time we get there, they've then moved on to to something else? I think you have to look for what has a little bit of staying power. Yeah, uh, we showed a few platforms that are nascent. Um, you know, typically eight, nine of ten of those will fail in the first year. So I think as communicators, be familiar with them. If you have a niche audience that's using them, sure, jump on and use that as a, a test and learn or a pilot. Um, I wouldn't sink a ton of resources into them. If you have or they have traction after a few months, take a bet. Um, it's almost like being a, a venture capitalist, right? You take a bet on a number uh, of new platforms, one pays off, uh, it'll pay off big, and you won't worry about the nine or 10 that failed uh, yeah. behind you. Well, that, that leads on nicely, actually, to you know, my next question actually, because you shared a lot of examples of so augmented reality, virtual reality, you finished with hyper reality. Um, 
and uh, but but again, so if you if you're in an, in a big agency, you've got loads of resources, and you can play with all this kind of stuff and see what works. Great. What about for your average in-house communicator? You know, that may not have the time, the budget, the human resource, you know, to throw at this kind of stuff. Is is there a easy entry point that they can try these things out? Well, I think you know, I work with nonprofits, and, and there's often often the challenge of understaffing and uh, fewer resources. And I think that there are a lot of very inexpensive tools out there. I mean, many of the things that we showed are either free apps or a couple dollars, things like that. Um, it's really, uh, I think, in part about not spreading yourself too thin. You know, as Mike was saying, p pick a couple of things that have uh, staying power, find, you know, maybe nonprofits have a, a tendency not to be leading at the forefront all of the time, uh, but to look to corporations and, and um, be able to use those. But I think there's a lot of examples out there where you can say, boy, I could do this on my own with my phone. I mean, there are so many options now. Um, that somebody could create a video. Instagram is, you know, we talked about video length in 15 seconds. Um, and it's out there and it's it's not difficult or expensive to do on your own at this time. And picking off from Amy on that, you know, I'll give you three things if you're looking um, at time, at expense, at other you know, considerations. One, time is what you make of it. So a lot of the work we've done over the past years in that um, where we find these, not only examples, but do it on our own, is I call it couch time. It's 10.30, it's 11 at night, watching a, a television show maybe and learning or experimenting at the same time. It's not the nine to five. Um, two is setting yourself up um, with, uh, say, a university or somebody else who's piloting this and trialing this. Make yourself a beta site. Say, come in and try it with us. Um, you know what, you're, uh, you have uh, a live experience with students or a live experience with your audiences. Why not try? Um, and then I think the other, the other piece of it um, is really um, taking a chance in reallocating some of your resources. You're spending dollars probably on techniques, on strategies, on tactics that were relevant five years ago or a year ago. Maybe they are today. Um, reallocate a few of those dollars into almost, again, a venture fund and uh, experiment a little bit. Excellent. Well, I've got one last uh, question for you. I was actually um, sat in your session uh, next to Angela Barter, who I actually interviewed in my previous show. Um, and uh, she wanted, so she had a question uh, for you. She wants to know which of those top 10 trends that you presented have you incorporated into your business or you know, some work that you've been doing with your clients? Um, and which ones have been successful in terms of, of communications? I don't know if you can share any case studies at all. Well, I can think of even just a couple simple things. Um, just even the, the use of, uh, with some clients, trying to get them to use Instagram to help with sharing, um, to have people tagging their photos and, and to be able to uh, submit pictures that they can, they can use. And I think photo submission overall has been one that I've used more with clients where um, you're able to source them from people who are, you know, it's authentic as well as it's often done quickly and inexpensively where people are taking pictures and then tagging or sending um, to share in, in different social media. That's been a common one. And it's a few. We just did a three-day video shoot um, and I paid a slight premium but to shoot everything in 4K. Why? Because I want to make sure I can use it for the next few years. Um, augmented reality. Um, we used an app with a, um, uh, a brochure for a very traditional B2B engineering client uh, that made the data on the page come to life uh, when you looked at it uh, you know, using your, uh, your viewer or your phone. 
and just a way to capture the attention of the engineer, the buyer, um, just a little bit more. But the biggest piece is the privacy aspect, and we've now incorporated that into all of our crisis and issues management training um, to really make our teams understand uh, what you may be giving up in terms of privacy, um, voluntarily or more so involuntarily, yeah. and to be ready for that. Well, we should probably um, mention that because you, you showed an example of, of like the high definition of the images and people might not want to be seen where they're sat. And oh, that's it. I think with auto-facial tagging, we've all experienced it on different social platforms. Uh, it's in its infancy. Yeah. And pretty soon, if you walk into a public place, you look at a camera near you, you're going to be tagged, whether an internal system um, or more than likely it's going to be made public as well. Yeah. So you should, you should no longer expect to have privacy in any type of public setting. So no, 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 no longer calling in sick to the office when you're at the ball game? Probably as, not, as because somebody will point it out very, <laughs> uh, very handily and quickly, I Fantastic. think. Fantastic. Um, Amy and, and Mike, quick, quickly give us your Twitter handle, so if anyone wants to contact you, follow you. Oh, I'm Amy Lewis PR, A-I-M-E-L-E-W-I-S-P-R. Uh, and on Twitter, it's uh, Mike McDoug, M-I-K-E-M-C-D-O-U-G. Fantastic. Uh, Amy and Mike, thanks for joining the show. Thanks Thank so you. much. Welcome back to the C-Suite podcast here at the World PR Forum in Toronto. Now, when we started this series, the aim was to interview CEOs of major international businesses. So I'm really thrilled that uh, we're joined today by John Betts, President and CEO of McDonald's Restaurants of Canada. Uh, now, alongside John is Gordon McIver, uh, President of the Empire Club of Canada. Thank you both for giving up your busy time and your busy schedules um, to join us here. Um, Gordon, I want to come to you first. Uh, you've just hosted the Diana and Charles Tisdale Lecture in Communications here at the conference um, with John. And on that panel, there was Diane Craig, CEO of Ford Canada, and Piers Hanlein, uh, the director and CEO of the Toronto International Film Festival. Could you just give us a, an overview of how the sessions came about and what you've been focusing on today? Sure. So this is a, a series that occurs every year in the context of this of this Congress. and. Uh, Basically, Charles Tisdall was one of the first PR men in Canada. He uh, set up a firm in the 1950s, early 1950s, and by the 1970s, he was being uh, cited all over the world as one of the top PR pioneers in, in his field in the world. So that's really what the award's about. He was a Torontonian, and we wanted to acknowledge that every year by, by having this, this talk. Um, the three CEOs that we chose for this were all winners of a Canadian award that's given out every year called the CEO of the Year Award in Public Relations. And uh, John, as the head of McDonald's, is actually the second CEO from McDonald's Canada that's won the award uh, in its 23-year history. Ford Canada has won it. The CEO of Ford was on our panel. And Pierce Handling from the Toronto International Film Festival is also a recipient. So, so that's uh, the genesis. And excellent. And, and the topic of the sort of focus of the session, just for the benefit of the listeners. Yeah. Well, we were we were interested in taking uh, two big companies operating internationally and look at what they do in Canada specifically with building a, a local brand, and whether there really are differences along geographical lines. Okay. Uh, and then we wanted to take a Canadian success story, and the Toronto International Film Festival is probably one of the most famous things out of Toronto in the last 25 years and see how they handled their brand outside of Canada specifically. Sure. So that really was what we were talking about okay. today. Excellent. Well, I, I picked up on a, a few of the uh, the issues and uh, that you raised uh, during the chat. chat. So John, um, I want to come to you because 
you started off discussing, well, it was both yourself and, and Diane from Ford, but you, you, you started off discussing, obviously, of course, the, the brand started in the US, but they've become global, had to adapt to different cultures. But John, you, you said even here in Canada, you talked about the differences between Canadians and Americans, and in fact, you, your quote was that you may look like Americans, sound similar, but you certainly don't think the same. And I was just wondering, what, what would you say have been the biggest challenges you've had, um, you've had in achieving that kind of local feel while remaining true to the global brand? Well, I think the, uh, the biggest challenges we have is always to remember that's connecting with the guests that you have in a given marketplace, whether it's a country or, or a large market somewhere uh, else in the world, is to start with what is important to the guests in that part of the world. You leverage the global brand's framework, whether it's services or, or products that are being provided, uh, in a fashion that you can leverage that recipe of success or that offer that that uh, service that's being provided but it's really important to take that framework and then make sure that you customize it so that it resonates with in this case Canadians and whether it's uh, the menu whether there's some nuances in terms of the food offerings that from either a cultural standpoint or a, a local standpoint you want to make sure that the menu meets their needs uh, you want to make sure that the experience itself, the way we deliver service, is something that's customizable. As an example, on service, in North America, drive-through in McDonald's is a very big part of our business. It's the majority of our business. If you go to Europe, it's a lesser part of the business. In Europe, families tend to eat more together, and so our inside restaurants have more seating than they would in North America. Okay. I'm guessing... Um you share these challenges and learnings with your fellow CEOs around the world. The one thing I was really intrigued to know, and, and um, I, I, didn't, I wasn't actually aware of it until you mentioned it in, in the session, is how has McDonald's here in Canada managed to get away with adding the maple leaf onto the golden arches? And has that led to any of your peers kind of threatening to throw their, their toys out the, out <laughs> oh, the you, ma you make me smile with that <laughs> question. I've had it many times. And uh, the reality is that that change with the McDonald's logo with a little red maple leaf right in the center of yeah. the, the golden arches was something that was done way, way back in the beginning, almost 50 years ago when we started doing business here in Canada. I actually don't know the story of how it came together, but I can tell you this, that nobody has been able to do it since. Right. And uh, I have had the question from a, a number of my uh, partners over the years in terms of uh, how we could get it done or if they could get it done in their part of the world and the answer really since we've gone global and we've got a structure and framework that is consistent around the globe today that uh, no one else has been able to get it done. Okay fair enough. Now you said uh, again picking up on one of the quotes you, you said you can't translate culture and uh, you talked about um, how uh, Quebec uh, feels far more European and so, given the majority of listeners to this podcast are outside Canada and the U.S., what experiences have you had in adapting your comms, your communications in that particular territory uh, that you could share? Well, if I could just go back to the statement about you can't translate culture, I think a lot of companies, if I think about Quebec, if a lot of companies come to uh, Quebec and do business, and initially, if you just translate the words, it doesn't necessarily translate in terms of what or how the, the Quebecers would think they're either enjoying a service or enjoying a, a meal. And it means that the, the words that we put together in a pure translation oftentimes will say something dramatically different than what you're actually trying to communicate. So when you talk about the culture, you're talking about the experience, the words that resonate 
in terms of what it is that's actually being eaten, in, in our case, from a, a food standpoint, or delivered from a, an experience standpoint. Gordon, just bringing you, I was going to say bringing you in, what's been your experiences in, in terms well, of the different cultures? In, in Canada, we've had many decades now of, of looking at the differences in, in marketing between Quebec and the rest of Canada. And they are very real, to, to John's point. I mean, um, I know that, for example, when, let's take the example of Colgate Toothpaste, when it started marketing its, uh, its product in Canada, they just quite simply uh, translated, uh, use this product, it will make your teeth whiter all across the country. The problem was that dental hygiene had become more advanced in, in certain parts of Canada than others, and it so happens that in, in Quebec, that message wasn't resonating yet. So they changed it to use this toothpaste and your teeth won't fall out, and marketing took off. Right. And, it's, and it's quite simply because you've got to start somewhere and it's got to be based on the cultural realities of your marketplace. Yeah. Well, that, that, that actually leads nicely onto, onto my next question, because uh, Gordon, you asked a great question in, in, the, uh, in the panel session about biggest successes and biggest failures. And so, John, again, maybe if you wouldn't mind, you, you, you gave a couple of examples. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing those again. Sure. I think for us in McDonald's Canada, the, uh, the biggest success that we've enjoyed from a brand standpoint has been the, uh, the birth and the emergence of McCafe as one of the fastest growing and most successful brands in all of Canada over the last uh, five or six years. And it really started with a small cup of coffee. 150 million cups of coffee given away for free over the last seven or eight years have really resonated incredibly well with Canadians, has gotten a great tasting product and coffee experience into the, the mouths and to the average Canadian out there that's really changed the way they think about us. Yeah. We started as a hamburger stand back in 1948 in the, in the United States, and today we're one of the best providers of a great quality cup of coffee across Canada. So I think it's been a, a huge success for us and I dare say it's been one of the most successful brand improvements in McDonald's world today and I'd say that would be true across the globe. When I think about uh, an area that maybe we didn't do so well, we had, uh, we've done very well with our Olympic connections with the global team. We had the Olympics in uh, 2010. In Canada, in Vancouver, a huge success. We took the global McDonald's relationship and really blew that into an unbelievable experience and event. A couple of years later, we had an opportunity to do something much along the same lines with FIFA, uh, the International Football Association. And we took the same kind of global program, but it didn't resonate the same way. We were given a format, an approach to take from a global standpoint. We didn't have the opportunity to customize it to the degree that we would have liked. And yet at the same time, at the end of the day, I think hockey wins and football <laughs> stays home. I'm, I'm from the UK, so uh, mind you, we don't do so well in the World Cups anyway. So, Basketball's um, coming up fast too. And <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> okay, I want to finish off. I've got one last question. And um, this is on the topic of social media and particularly the, the subject of the social CEO and for the benefits of any new listeners uh, that, that we picked up through uh, doing these podcasts here at, uh, at the conference. We actually covered this off in detail back in show eight, so a little plug for a previous show there. And Gordon, I'd, I'd also like your thoughts on, on this too, but as a CEO who has won, a, a, as we uh, just, just heard, has previously won a Communicator of the Year Award, how much do you use social media personally to communicate to both your consumer audience but also from an internal perspective too? Actually, maybe Gordon, let's hear your thoughts first, and then okay, I'll, sure. I'll come back to you. Well, I mean, the power of social media is, is 
become something that no one even questions anymore at all. I mean, it's a way of, of life for, for many people. I have six social media sites myself, and I'm 62 years old. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's, I don't think it's even a young person's game anymore. It's everybody's on social media. Um, the problem being a CEO and, and getting heavy into social media, um, and I've heard this from all the CEOs I've ever talked to about it, is that it's very time-consuming. And you can't have somebody tweeting on your behalf or somebody blogging on your behalf. It does not work. It's not you. It doesn't come across as authentic. So to find the time in a CEO schedule is the, I would submit, probably the biggest issue. I don't know. Would you agree with that, John? Well, uh, absolutely. And, and my interaction with social media in, in that format would be limited to large McDonald's conferences, whether they're Canadian-born and uh or at the global conference, I'll communicate with our internal family, tweeting them messages, communicating them, making them aware of things. On the external front, because of the, if you want to do it right, you've really got to be committed to it. And there's so many things that face us in terms of communication and engagement that this is one area that's hard for us to, to really do a good job day in and day out. However, what I do prefer when we talk about engagement or social media is leveraging the voices of others, particularly people who are not McDonald's employees. And I'd cite the example of Our Food, Your Questions, a very successful social media effort in transparency in terms of talking about McDonald's food uh, for the, uh, the opportunity for people to ask any question they, they wanted about McDonald's food, go online. Mm -hmm and we would answer it in its totality in, in a very truthful way and, and it just wouldn't be corporate people answer, it would be suppliers, it would be employees in restaurants, owner operators. Voices that would not be corporate in nature but would resonate better with the people who ask the questions. Those questions, uh, you know, we, we answered uh, over 25,000 different kind of questions wow. that came in but the views were in the millions in terms of the answers, whether it was in video or whether it was communication. And what really resonated with people, it wasn't me. It was others talking about it. And the success of the program was really borne by others telling others, check out McDonald's site. They really talk about some amazing things. I think what you're saying, you better check that site out because I'm not sure that it's true. Yeah. This is like third-party endorsement on that's steroids, exactly, isn't that's it? That's exactly no, what it is. makes it yeah. far more authentic, obviously, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a fantastic way to, to finish a, a nice little uh, example there. So, um, Gordon MacGyver, and as the, the noise gets even louder here, as they're uh, clearing up around us on, at the conference, uh, Gordon MacGyver, John Betts, thanks so much for uh, joining the show. Pleasure. A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. So there you go. That wraps up the final interview of this series of special shows I've been producing for the World PR Forum. I want to thank the team at CPRS for inviting me to record the shows. Uh, the conference has been absolutely outstanding. Toronto is superb. And I even managed to squeeze in a drive round to Niagara Falls, which was simply stunning. So if any uh, listeners get a chance to come and visit, make sure you make that trip. Um, don't forget, you can listen to all previous shows of this series by subscribing on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for the C-Suite podcast. And please, if you can, uh, as I always ask, give the show a positive rating and review. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith or drop me a line using the contact form at csweetpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye.